The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, today we did a slightly different meditation, and uh, some of you know this, but some of you don't. Once a month we have a practice group that's all about the Buddhist practices of love. And so in Buddhism, we call them the four divine abodes or the four Brahma-viharas, where we practice loving kindness or that basic goodwill, that basic goodness. We practice compassion practices, appreciative joy practices, and equanimity practices. So what we did today, the guided meditation today, was really in that flavor, right? So if you ever want to join in, it's a drop-in program like the Sunday morning program is, first Friday of the month, which means this Friday, 7 to 8.30, and we'll do one flavor of those guided meditations and then kind of talk about it afterward. So join us for any of those first Friday of the months, and it's a great and maybe even essential complement to awareness practices that we do at the center. So if we really want to cultivate that continuity of mindful awareness in your life, it's not really easy to be awake if we don't we haven't sort of activated this heart's capacity for love. And I think it's fair to say that everybody has to do some serious work uh, at sort of unpacking all the sentimental and idealistic notions we have about love and to learn how to uncover what this heart is actually capable, the love this heart is actually capable of. It's something real and immediate and available, but unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of unfortunate things about our cultural conditioning, and one of those unfortunate things is we have a lot of mixed up ideas about what love is, and it's like we've got to reform our understanding or our experience of love, and we do that by paying attention to it, you know, like, oh, that's not love, that's attachment, (laughs) you know, that's one of the most obvious mistakes we make, like when you're falling in love with someone and you think, I love this person, and then in a a brief moment of honesty, you realize, no, that's not love. I just really need that person to treat me this way. That's not love. It's actually not even skillful, this attitude I have in my mind, in my heart right now. But it can masquerade as love, and we can call it love, Being really dependent on someone is not love. It's being really dependent on someone. Now, love is a generosity of the heart. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong when we're dependent on another human being or somebody else is dependent on us. That happens. It's a lot of what happens in our relationships. But let's just call it for what it is. It's like, we've got this arrangement. I'll take care of you. You take care of me. And it works well enough. And then in that arrangement of sort of working together to build our house together, our our home life together, we might discover that in some moments of doing that, there's a natural flow of love that's for its own sake. It It isn't a business, it isn't about getting something back, it's just a natural generosity. I just really love you. I just really want to support you. I just really want to take care of you. And we can have that for ourselves. And we can even have it for all beings in moments we do. Because one of the characteristics of what you could call spiritual love or real love is it has this quality of expansion. 
It isn't actually dependent on a particular relationship you have with your cat or your dog or with a beautiful sunset or with your lover or whatever. Real love isn't about any particular relationship. It's It's like a view or an attitude of mind that is very stable and all-inclusive. So that's one of the ways you'll notice when it's available for you in a moment or in moments, is that you'll see that maybe you first found it in some interaction with another human being or with your cat, and then you realize that you care about the cutting board in the same way, and all those neighbors that you have nothing in common with, and that person at work, who's doing the best they can, even though you can't really handle being in the same room with them. But that love goes everywhere, even to people who are hateful, even to people who are really confused. doesn't mean you're not going to try to do something to make the world a better place. It just means you understand that they also can be included. doesn't mean that what they do is right or skillful. It just means you don't have to throw them out of your heart. Like you could bring to mind a politician that you find disturbing. (laughs) Does it help, does it do anybody, including yourself, any good to throw them out of your heart? Does it? No. It doesn't do any good. I mean, it's basically we end up doing what other people are doing that we find so despicable. Other people throw people out of their heart and we can be really critical and hate them. It's, it's the worst irony. Hate begets hate. We feel so justified hating people who are expressing hatred or ignorance. Why? So this is the thing about um, this work of equanimity. And I really want to save more time for discussion today, so I won't talk too long because it's our last day talking about equanimity. And I thought in particular today to really look at equanimity as an expression of love. Right? Like I've been mentioning, in order for us to be close to the world we actually live in, the messy world, the ambiguous world, the uncertain world. I mean, even the people that we know well, like those of you who have intimate partners, you know, when we really show up with that person, what we really show up to is a mystery. I mean, they're all over the place. We ha- our, idea might, our idea of our partner might be relatively stable, but the actual experience of our partner isn't. It's wild. Right? Sometimes the person's this way, sometimes the person's that way. Sometimes they express really beautiful qualities. Sometimes they're demonic. Right? <laughs> Same with our pets. Right? It's amazing. They can be so amazingly sweet and amazingly demonic. And it's really important that we see that in everybody, that people are capable of a full range of, act, you know, of expressions. Because we don't want, it's, it's a kind of violence to expect somebody to fit our expectation instead of to give them permission to be who and what they are, which is all over the place, all over that spectrum. And to find a way to say yes to them. doesn't mean we're, we're not going <coughs> to speak truth to power or do what needs to be done, but in that moment, 
we're, we're practicing not throwing anybody out of our heart. And to do that, we need equanimity. Equanimity is that quality of the mind. It's that quality of love that knows how to be close, knows how to be intimate with what's hard to be intimate to. So we have a word for it, equanimity. Equanimity is that capacity we have, if we develop it, to be close, to be relaxed, to be receptive to things that are hard to be receptive to. And often that means things that are uncertain, that are ambiguous, that are hard to pinpoint, but yet I can be okay with it. Because the ego likes things set. Now either the person's a jerk or they're nice. But I can't handle like both. You've got to be in one of my camps or the other. But it's just not the way it is. And so we have equanimity so we can let people be the way that they are. Like all over the place. You know? So your good friend is coming or your favorite enemy is coming and you're going to have an interaction. And you can have the attitude like not, oh, this is who that person's going to be when I see them, but I wonder who's going to show up. I wonder what the interaction's going to be like. And even like, I wonder who's going to show up for me. Like, what Mark is going to show up. And all of a sudden, life gets really interesting. You know, who's going to show up? How's it going to be? Will I be able to include it? Will I be able to be close? Will I be able to understand this is how it is now? Because in any moment of our life, the fact is, this is how it is now. So being close doesn't mean we want it to be that way or that we're going to be complacent. No, being close means that if a response is required, being close will help us have a skillful response. Being intimate, understanding that it is like this now. Uh, we did that chant at the beginning about karma. And it's a, it's a really potent chant to bring to mind. The Buddha recommends that we bring those five things to mind every day. So you can try to remember to do that. Just pick a time, like when you walk from your car to your office or before you have a meal, you know, because that particular time then you'll remember, oh yeah, I've got this four-minute walk. Why don't I remember these five remembrances? Being of the nature to get old, being of the nature to sicken. So even we're not taking our health for granted because we know it's just a matter of time before we lose our health. And then maybe we get it back and then we lose it and then we get it back. We're of the nature to die. So sicken, age, die. Everything that is we love, everything that's beloved to us will be taken away. We don't get to keep anything really worked hard and you've made a really beautiful apartment, set up a beautiful apartment for yourself or a beautiful home or beautiful relationships, but all of that one way or another is going to fall apart or cease or will be taken away when we die. So it doesn't mean we stop trying to make our lives better. It just means we understand that everything will be taken from us. It's just the way it is. And then the last is our intentional actions set things in motion. So there's no way, the Buddha says there's no way to hide. In, you know, in Buddhist, cosmolo- Buddhist cosmology, it's like 
And you don't have to think of it that you're going to receive it. So like you may have done something really badly, but so far you haven't seemed to receive the consequences of it. But the idea is you can't hide. So maybe it isn't you. You die, this life, this sort of memory of this life dies. But somewhere, whatever was set in motion, some being will receive the consequence of it. Now, when you think about all the negative things that even I or you have set in motion, that can be a frightening prospect. But now we'll come back to equanimity, and then I'll open it up for conversation. Because given that we're going to receive, like think of all those despicable thoughts you had when you were a teenager, or maybe when you were 58, (laughs) like now or earlier today. So even thoughts set things in motion, let alone what we say out loud and what we do, our actions, our deeds in the world, have consequences to them. And the Buddha says, there's nowhere you can hide. But there is something we can do about that. And the difference is, this is a beautiful metaphor, and the Buddha talks about how when karma ripens, when the, the natural, lawful consequences for what has been set in motion show up in your life, sometimes when that shows up, it really throws you for a loop. You know, So maybe you were mean to somebody, you just were exhausted and weren't paying attention, and you said something that was deeply hurtful to somebody. Okay? And, you know, and then that goes, temporarily goes away, but then turns out later that this person is your boss, you know, or ha- you know, somehow you have to interact with this person and there's some baggage there now, right? And this person is just uh, appropriately or whatever deeply mistrustful of you, something like that. Now, you could be in a really tight or narrow or needy place and that mistrust could really cause a lot of suffering in your life. Or you could be in a very wise, expansive, equanimous state, and their mistrust of you, the natural result of what happened earlier, would be not even a blip, because you'd be able to handle it. You'd understand it. You'd just deal with it, right? So the Buddha has this wonderful simile. He says, and I'm just modifying the simile, he said, If you take a cup of salt and you put a cup of salt in a pint of fresh water from Lake Superior, that water is going to be really salty. But if you take a cup of salt and you throw it in Lake Superior, it's not really going to affect the water at all, right? And he says it's the same way. You might have set something in motion in your life, done something really skillful, really unskillful, The results are expressing themselves in your life right now, the consequences of your earlier actions. But now you're like Lake Superior, right? It's still happening to you. You still have to interact with that person who harbors deep mistrust of you. But you have this kind of really expansive wisdom, expansive love, expansive understanding and you're able to really respond appropriately to their deep mistrust. But if you're in a really narrow, tight, needy, uh, neurotic space, 
and somebody's deeply mistrustful, you could react in a particular way, which would just trigger their, reinforce their sense that you are not to be trusted, and then they act a certain way, which just makes you even more angry because that was 20 years ago, and don't you realize I'm not that person anymore, and on and on, and you could have hell for yourself. So even though there's a lot of karma, and it's not even our own karma. The United States has karma, right? When the United States as an entity, as a community, does things, we set things in motion. Have you noticed? (laughs) And families have karma, and communities have karma. There's all kinds of karma. And the earth, just living on the earth has karma. You know? Karma, all karma means is Action has reaction, right? There causes, it's a, con- we live in a conditional universe. <laughs> Things are unfolding. This weather is the karma, is the natural fruit of whatever came before. So there are all these natural processes. This thing we call me, this body and mind thing here, it's not that different than weather, right? There are just these innumerable causes and conditions that are unfolding lawfully, conditionally, like weather is. And some of what's unfolding here is the force of culture, right? And some of it is the force, is the continuation of genetic material, right? So the ancestral karma that is moving from the reptilian, mammal, you know, all the way to my relatives in Poland, ancestors in Poland here, So there are all these, it's not like just me. This is a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings on karma that like I have karma. No, no, no. There's no I there. There are just these many, 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 many overlapping lawful conditional processes unfolding. Nothing can stop it except we can grow wisdom. This is another karmic activity, right? We plant the seeds, we water the seeds for wisdom. That's like moving from being a pint of water to Lake Superior to this sort of infinite expanse. So karma, the lawfulness, the conditional nature of all things still continues to unfold. Good things happen, bad things happen. Volcanoes arise, beautiful summer days come to be. Too much food, not enough food people hating each other around us, people loving each other, harmonious times, strife, all these different causes and conditions will arise. But it is possible to cultivate a profound love, a profound wisdom, which makes it a lot easier to be in a world that is unfolding lawfully, where nobody's in control of the unfolding. Have you noticed? Right? We pretend we're in control. That's just a temporary privilege that you can imagine you're in control of what's happening in your life. And even if things are really turning out great for you right now, you might as well lose the thought that it's because you're competent. Because it's not. It's because of good fortune, of whatever sort of these infinite number of conditional processes that are making your life the way it is right now, that's just this sort of peak experience and this 
infinite unfolding of things and that will just keep tumbling along. So when things are going well, that's actually a really good time to grow wisdom, the wisdom of equanimity, the love of equanimity that can handle it when it's not so great, not so beautiful, like we're dying or somebody we care about is dying or, you know, future generations are getting upset because the world's getting hot and they're wondering about the older folks and why they didn't take care of the problem or people who have been oppressed for centuries because of the color of their skin are wondering when people who haven't been oppressed for a long time are going to start owning up to the systemic institutionalized structures that perpetuate these sort of patterns that harm people who look a particular way. So it's equanimity is the only thing that's going to allow us to be right in the middle of the life we're living, to be awake, to be sensitive, to be responding appropriately, to be having a beautiful life. There's no other way than to grow equanimity. And the way we grow equanimity is we experiment. Like when we sit still, this is the most simple way, when we sit still and we have a little knee pain, right? It's like we might just, before we move the leg, stretch the leg out to get rid of the, the knee pain, we might just sit with it for a few moments as long as we're not harming the knee, just sit with it for a while and just see, like, is there a wisdom, is there a love? We have a word, equanimity. Is there this beautiful quality that can be okay when there's knee pain? Yeah, sure, I could move my leg and get rid of it, but let me just see if there's a way to be with it because some things we can't just immediately get rid of. So let me practice with restlessness. Let me practice with knee pain. Let me practice with some sadness. Let me practice with restlessness. And then when you get good at the difficult stuff, start practicing with the beautiful stuff. So when you're feeling joy, just relax with that. Just let joy be joy, not having to do anything about it. Let peace be peace. Let delight be delight. So we're learning to let everything move and at the same time be peaceful. Difficult stuff moves, and we relate to it with peace, the peace of equanimity. Beautiful stuff happens, we relate to it with peace. Difficult stuff happens, we relate to it with peace. We just find a different way. Instead of riding the highs and lows and taking the highs and lows personally and always being thrown around by life, we learn to relate with equanimity. And actually, it's an enlivening way to live. A lot of people, when they hear the word equanimity, think it's a flat or a dead way to experience life. But remember what I said at the beginning, you can't be intimate without equanimity. So if you really want to feel what it feels like when joy is arising or when difficulty is arising, you have to be equanimous. It's the only way to be connected. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some folks today because in a room of 80 or 100 people, there's a lot of learning around equanimity, like what gets in the way of equanimity, what has supported equanimity in your life, and questions you have. And we're going to start with Raha. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth. You want to pass it all the way back? Good morning. I'm Raha. Um, 
I was uh, very thankful I came today because every sentence you said um, I could connect with and I just felt like I wish everybody in my family and extended family was here and could hear the words. They were very applicable to life. Um, and then about the meditation part, I felt like um, that was the first time um, I had this experience that um, I always thought the self, me, is the same as my heart, not my body. I would separate my body from my heart. But in your today's meditation, I felt like you even separate the heart. You even kind of separated the heart and had us look at your heart and be generous to it and see how it is feeling. So it was kind of new to me to look at my heart as a different entity. Um, yeah. Is that your intention? Is that what you wanted? Yeah, because the identification with the heart as self gets in the way of setting it in motion, setting it free, right? Because when we take something personal, like another subtle thing that we tend to take personally is awareness. So both the sensitivity of the heart, the love of the heart we take personally, and awareness we take personally. So the most obvious thing we take personally is the body. And the body sort of... But that, with some practice, is pretty easy to say, this body is not me. You know, yeah, maybe it's my vehicle or vehicle for love, but it's not really me. The harder thing is the, the heart and awareness. But we really want to set those free. We want to see that awareness is happening, but it's not self. Love is happening. Love is there, but it's not self. Because it actually, it's easier to see the truth of it when we don't try to make it me. And we just leave, instead of saying that the heart is not me or awareness is not me, we just see it for what it actually is. Just experience what that is. That's what it is, not what we call it, me, you know. It's just that experience of sensitivity, just that capacity to include or that capacity to let things be or to be close or to care. That's a capacity we can notice or the mind can know, right? So there's knowing and there's something beautiful that can be known like love or equanimity. But where's me? Well... Why do we need that? Why can't there be love being known? The experience of love being known. Why can't it just be what it... Because that's our subjective experience. Love is being known. We don't need to add a raha that's knowing the love or a raha that is the love. That's extra and it kind of constricts the freedom of love being known. Love doing what love does, connecting, non-harming, supporting, right? Yeah, thanks, Raha. What else comes to mind? What have you been learning these last weeks as we've talked about equanimity or questions that you might have? Oh, yeah, please. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed your talk this morning. Um, I found it especially prescient because I have discovered in the past week or so that a person I've been dating for about a month is very racist and homophobic um, and I didn't realize that when I first 
started seeing them. Um, so there was obviously many other admirable and loving qualities that I was attracted to and got attached to. Um, so I'm, I guess I have a question about having some sort of universal love for all beings and also having a healthy distance from people or things in your life that, you know, aren't healthy for you. Um, and distance, healthy yeah. distance. Yeah. And that's why when we do that, any kind of love reflection, we always begin because it's not so much that I need to love myself more than other people, but love has this quality of expansion, as I said. But first and foremost, we're going to recognize there is a life right here, and I care about this life. Right Before I recognize that there's a life over there, there's a tender, sensitive heart here experiencing the uncertainty and ambiguity and vulnerability of life right here. So when you're dealing with people that um, are challenging or difficult for you, yeah, we want to be able to care about them and to love them. But we also want to care about ourselves. So just because we have compassion for them doesn't mean we should be around them or doesn't mean that we should that we need to say we might need to say something to them like i can't be around you doesn't feel safe to be around you so this is the great thing about this understanding of love it the radiance of love equanimity compassion all the different facets of love it goes everywhere equally ultimately so it always will go to yourself. You always want to take care of yourself. So why wouldn't you pull back if you feel unsafe? Why wouldn't a person hold back? Well, maybe they haven't, maybe they've got in the habit of thinking, well, I don't deserve love, right? Because there are a lot of neurotic habits we all have around love. Like I said earlier in the talk, we need to really reform what our understanding is of love because a lot of people have this habit of wanting to take care of other people but somehow forgetting that they're a human being that needs to be taken care of too. Why would we neglect the person who's closest to us? Us, you know, this life right here and want to protect them and help them have a good life. So that's the key. It's not so much that we don't care, we're not going to take care of other beings, but we also have to take care of ourselves. And it's really, that's how we learn how to take care of other beings is we, we make all the mistakes with ourselves and we learn from our mistakes and we get better at keeping ourselves safe, better at putting ourselves to bed, better at feeding ourselves, better at surrounding ourselves with people that bring out our beautiful qualities, right? Because don't we want to bring out our beautiful qualities? Same way you'd like to bring out in that person you mentioned, that person's beautiful qualities too. And maybe you're the person to do it or maybe you're not. And that's you know probably what you need to figure out. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Did you say Bethany? Yeah, thanks Bethany. Alexa. Hi, I'm Alexa. Um, one thing that uh, struck me this morning when was when you were talking about how um, we fall in love with someone or someone comes into our life. And then eventually we see other aspects of them other than the person we fell in love with. 
and uh, my partner who was dying of leukemia, when I met him, fell in love with him, he was this very strong, vibrant person. Everyone noted him for his energy. He was a runner, and he was always very vibrant in his presence all the time. And now he's, um, through the process of leukemia, in the final phase, he's being broken down. I've been watching his body just being broken down. It's like as if to some kind of bare essence. And I see him struggle just to cross a room, and he has to sit down. And through this experience, sometimes I thought my heart was breaking, and I, hearing you talk, I realize I've had experience of my heart stretching like it's a larger love I have for him, totally different than the man I met. But what I'm feeling now is, I think, a love that's more powerful and much larger. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that has come to me out of this process. Thank you so much for sharing that, Alexa. We appreciate it. Other thoughts to share with the group? What have you been learning about equanimity? Where in your life do you see it? What do you see in the way preventing it from arising? Yeah, Sharon, please. Sharon teaches our chair yoga on Tuesday afternoons at 2.30. Everyone's invited. She's also a longtime leader here at the center. I come from a place in my life where I, I have um, had to, I, I inherited a lot of negative behaviors from as I was growing up. So my process has been about learning how, through these kind of principles, to have uh, a healthy life. One, I was listening to, is it Beth or uh, Bethany? And um, my and I have a deep understanding of um, there were people in that I wanted to be with in my life while I was learning to be a different person, who were affected by my negative behavior. And some of the biggest lessons I learned was when someone would say, "I really don't want you to be a part of my life." Um. And that taught me more about, I mean, it would be jarring to me. I remember one particular woman that I thought we could be friends, and she said, I really don't want to be around you anymore. So today I'm a different person, and I look back on that and with, with uh, gratitude for people who said, no, I want to have calm in my life, and you bring disruption so I hit some brick walls, and today I'm different, and I'm grateful. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. And I, <coughs> I think that's really important because when, going back to Bethany's example, <coughs> when we're around somebody who's difficult for us, we need that humility. We don't know, actually, what the right medicine is for that person in terms of them changing their life around for the better. It's hard enough to have a sense of what's good medicine for us, like whether to leave the relationship or to stay. So to determine, like to stay because we think we're good for that person or we're the right person to save that person, it's really hard to know that. But what we can know is like, at least if we practice, we can have some intuition, you know, I think I need to back away. I need to say no to this person. 
or I need to stay in it because it's good for me. Because sometimes people need medicine that's very painful to them, like Sharon was saying. And I think we have to understand that we may not, you know, we're not trying on purpose to hurt someone, but that person taking care of themselves and saying to Sharon, I can't have you in my life, like Sharon says, that turned out to be really good medicine for her. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Maybe time for one more person. Yeah, Dan. <laughs> I'm Dan. Um, I'm kind of looking for a rule of thumb of watching myself, you know, maybe getting to equanimity, because it seems like when things pop up in my day, I'm capable of a number of reactions. Um, sometimes immediately to whatever's happening, you know, in this high season of politics, there's a lot of room for that. But also me watching my own reactions. I get mad at myself at, at how I'm reacting because that's just how I grew up and what have you. So I guess I'm thinking, would it be generally wise if you're going to focus on, if you're having multiple reactions, focus on the, the, the most natural rising one, if it's anger, just say, I'm going to be with anger, and then worry about engaging the other stuff later sort of thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's part of a, a really essential part of it, and I would call it more of an art than a science, because if, as you get interested in and really value being present in life, which hopefully we all are now, we're here because on some level we intuit the great, protecting value, liberating value of being more mindfully aware more often. And the real art of being mindfully aware is this wisdom that knows what's predominant. Basically what you were saying, Dan, what to pay attention to. So initially it's a little neurotic where we're directing the mind, telling the mind what to be aware of, but hopefully that doesn't last too long and we want to pretty quickly notice what the mind is being aware of and just assume that's predominant or that's what needs to be known. Because it's a little bit like what I was saying a few minutes ago, we don't really know what's predominant or the way we know what's predominant is because that's what the mind is knowing. That In the array of what's happening in any moment of our life, this is what the mind is looking at. And so the attitude is more, well, that's interesting that this is what's in the forefront of awareness. This emotion, this experience, this sound, that sound, you know. It's like, oh, this is what's in the forefront. Okay, this is being known. Can this be okay? Like, can I be intimate with this without fear, without greed? Or if there is fear and greed, can I then notice that? Okay, there's this being known and the fear is coloring it. Okay, this is how it is. Can I be intimate with that? So to let the objects of our experience in our field of awareness, to let the objects that come into the forefront come into the forefront. So when we sit and meditate, you know, we often direct the attention to an anchor like the breath. But very quickly, you know, after we get some stability, when the mind gets distracted, we don't always rush back to the breath. Sometimes we let those other objects come into the forefront and we just notice, oh, now this is what's being known. So we're learning that art of the mind, the wisdom in the mind, knowing what's predominant because that's what's being known. 
And it's a real relief because otherwise it can feel a little tight to have to figure it out. It's more of an organic process of the attention going to whatever it finds most interesting or threatening or whatever. So it's 11.45. We need to end here. Just Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. And thanks again, everybody, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.